Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Grandstand cricket. With a splendid innings for New Zealand. But they are all out for 372. Another test is done and dusted. Now it's time for some post-match parlay with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. Hello and welcome to the Final Word podcast. Adam Collins here with Jeff Lemon from Adelaide at the conclusion of the third test match against South Africa where Australia have won by seven wickets. Jeff, we're back in business, baby. Australia are on the board. Big Kev, excited. Uh, there really was a kind of clean-out sale, a white good sale of, of former slightly used test cricketers. Some of them barely used, to be honest. You know, a couple of them just out of the box. <laughs> um, didn't have many dints or scratches on them, but, but out the door they went. And yeah, it seems like a long time. I mean, I know it was only a New Zealand back in February was the last time Australia won a test match but uh, it feels like a lot longer ago. Yeah, it also feels like a long time since we last spoke. It might have been 10 or 11 days since we recorded after the Hobart test match. Since then we've had a, an entire shield round which was essentially a, an audition for the test side. A selection. Wasn't that great? Like people actually cared about shield cricket for a yeah. week. They actually paid attention. Oh, um, the scorecards were, were must read and the live streams would have done a cracking business on the Cricket Australia website I'm sure. And then the selection massacre is the best way you can describe it after that with um, six changes to the squad that got you know thumped in, in Hobart. And then obviously in, in Adelaide, we had the three debutantes, a fourth in the squad in Chad Sayer. Yeah, so five ten- changes to the 11. Yeah, it was, it was significant. So, and, it was, and, I, and I would say it was, it was a really solid test win. This wasn't like a, you know, they, they, they beat a, a middling opposition. This was a good test match where both sides were in it for the bulk of the, the four days. So either side and, and in won. difficult conditions. You know, we saw yeah. that against New Zealand at Adelaide last year. It's very different to your average test match playing a day-night test at Adelaide. You, you have to really change your approach. And they were able to do that. You know, they, it requires much more defensive work than a, an average daytime test might do. Yeah, that's right. Under the lights with the pink ball, it's certainly made for a wonderful setting. Again, the beautiful colours in the sky each night makes some great photos as well. So we were very happy to be there for it. But at least we've got a bit of a reset now. The blood setting, or blood letting rather, has stopped. A bit, a bit of normalisation. So we'll, we'll come to all that, Jeff. Uh, today, in today's final word, we're going to go through Australia's win in some depth. We're going to look at the debutantes and we're going to cast forward for what's ahead with the white ball and the red and the pink for that matter, all today on The Final Word. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, ABC Grandstand. Right, so Australia have won this test match by seven wickets, Jeff, but it's worth remembering that on day one, they actually lost the toss, and that's not for nothing. Given what happened in Adelaide last year, um, Smith was fairly clear he wanted to bat, but with less grass uh, on the track, I think they were both inclined to bat first. So really, they, they were under pressure as far as um, wanting to make sure they were able to uh, make a dent in the South African top order early. And once again, it was Josh Hazelwood. He, he has been just phenomenal uh, since returning from, well, what, it was a bit of a layoff in the middle of the year, but now since he's came back into the test side, he's not missed a beat. Yeah, well, he was he was bowling over in Sri Lanka and, and wore himself out there sort of July and August and then got uh, got the break for the one-day trip to South Africa, so freshened up a bit and 
uh, apparently is in in much better fitness and health to get through the summer. But uh, look, he, he was he, he's just so consistent when he when he decides to sort of pull the length back, hit the spot, and get it right. And he really enjoyed bowling in these conditions. Stark was enjoying bowling with the pink ball because it swung appreciably. But Hazelwood was able to get really good bounce and carry out of it. And I think that's what stood out for me day one was that this Adelaide pitch, you know, always thought of as a bit of a flattish pitch or a road. Since the advent of day night, it's completely changed Adelaide's character. It's it's a totally different ground, you know, from the ground where say India won late in in two thousand and three. Four or where where Australia rolled England over in that famous Ashes encounter in 0607, this sort of dusty kind of roads that that then became you know conducive to spin late in the match or a bit of reverse swing late in the match and suddenly you know sides were knocked over on day five after batathons through the first few days. Now it's all about defence. It's all about the seeming ball. There's grass. There's movement. Um, but there was so much carry and that's not something that you expect to see from a, an Adelaide deck is the ball springing through to the keeper like that. Yeah, and even since they brought the drop in tracking. In, in 13, 14, the scores over the previous 10 or 12 years, it was consistently needing to make over 500 in the first innings to even be a chance to win the test match. And that was pretty regular um, when you when you batted first and won that toss. But you're dead right. It, was, it made for much different conditions both last year against New Zealand and, and this year against the Proteas. But, um, and this, who would have thought at Adelaide Oval you'd have a side declaring on day one? Yeah, absolutely. And not, in, in no small part due to the innings that Faf Duplessis played after the skipper came into this test match uh, amid controversy with the, the mint gate, which we dealt with um, in other forums. And I'm, I'm going to say, Jeff, let's just leave that one yeah, um, today. Enough, that, has that, 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 enough has been said about that topic. Um, we've written many, many words and we've said many as well. And, all, and, and, and But I guess the, the, the final... Mint, the mint is no longer fresh. It, it is not, that's for sure. And, and probably nor were the front pages that smashed him up on the front on the first day of that test match yeah. as well, which which declared him a cheat uh, and all the rest. I mean, you know, that, 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 that's a little bit of pantomime, I'm a little bit of uh, hamming it up for the for the local uh, for the local paper on the first day of a test match, mm. much like we saw with Stuart Broad in 2013 um, in in that opening test match at the Gabba when the Courier Mail did something similar. But I think uh, the consensus is he was the wrong bloke to wind up. He made 118 unbeaten, and he bloody loved it. And the Adelaide crowd booed until their voice was raw. And it didn't make any difference really. And and this came after his last trip to Adelaide where he made an unbeaten 100 that really pissed <laughs> off Australia as well. Um, saved a test match in that occasion. Wasn't enough to, to salvage a win on this occasion. But what an innings he played, given that he had such, such little support. You know, Stephen Cook battled to 40 opening the batting. And aside from that, really no one, no one else, particularly from the top order, came through for him. There was a, a bit there from Vernon Philander later on and, you know, a little, little bit of lower order resistance, uh, a little bit from Quentin de Kock. But, you know, three of the, the top five were out for five runs, uh, you know, well, each. You're missing to Bryce Shamsey on, on, on debut who... Uh, who, who uh, Clobbered 18 who, not At the end. So, I mean, he made a contribution before he had a chance. Yeah, but he was, it was pure slog strokes. I mean, yeah, he was but, just walloping But away. I thought it was really important. I mean, I thought in the context of that first day, it enabled Faf to make that declaration, which was without precedent, by the way. After 76 overs, he declared his innings over or declared the South African innings over the earliest in the history of test cricket. Not yeah. a bad effort when they played about 2,100 test matches over 140 years to have, have a new record quite so bizarre as that. And as we yeah. said before, especially when Adelaide is renowned for enormous first innings totals. But I guess that's how the pink ball changes the, the fluctuations and the tempo of a test match because they know that getting to bowl under lights in that last hour, especially or the last 45 minutes even when it's particularly dark and the sun is completely set, that yep. is a huge comparative advantage. Yeah, and, and there was the advantage there and, and also the you know 
know, the clever kind of gamesmanship from Duplessis of realising that Warner had been off the field for medical treatment, so if Australia's innings started at that exact moment, he wouldn't be allowed to open the batting. So he thought, well, look, I can stay out here with the number 11 and we might add another 10 or 20, but we might be out next ball. Um, or I can declare now, make sure that the Australian opener can't take his place, make sure that they're going to face a dozen overs under lights, the ball's going to move around, it's going to be difficult, and we'll shake up their batting order. Great in theory, didn't work out as the replacement opener goes on and makes a ton. Well, that's right. So it's when Kawaja, I think uh, Daniel Brady from Crick Info wrote that, that, wrote that uh, when you're um, in cricket, what you're trying to do as a fielding side is, is to disturb the patterns of the batting team. And that certainly did that sending Usman Kawaja out with a debutante as well, and Matthew Renshaw, who we're going to deal yeah, in, in greater depth later in the show. There's been so much stuff during the week about Renshaw and Warner working together to sort of work out how they were going to operate as an opening partnership, you know, the calling of their runs and, and their who takes strike and the batting style. And then to have that thrown out the window on the kids' first innings, you know, he, he doesn't get to bat with the guy he's been preparing with. He's out there with Usman Kowaja. But the, uh, the 12 overs they did face overnight ended up being uh, lauded across the country, back pages everywhere. I was, oh, I was part of it. You were part of it. We were all part of it. We were calling it the I future. was a bit less part of it than you were part of I, it. I was fairly part of it, wasn't I? I, I was sitting I, I next was... to you and I think your part of it was so immense that it kind of absorbed me as well, even though mm. I was a conscientious objector. I think I, I just really wanted it to happen. From the get-go, he looks like he was going to play a lot of test cricket when he walked out to bat. The tall man with the with the big levers, as they say, wearing the cricket jumper with the crest on the front of it. When he was fielding, he was wearing a watch, like a bit old school there as well. I, I liked everything about oh, yeah. him on, on day one. Spectacles in the top pocket, just, yeah, he, <laughs> just to read the paper at the tea break. It just felt right to me and, and, and and, and, and that was probably partly why I was so keen for him to do well, not least the fact that I know his family as well. So I'm slightly invested in his career. You, but, um, you, you liked the leave. I mean, I mean, just for full disclosure to the listeners, Adam turned to me after stumps, after 12 overs of Matt Renshaw's career, eight not out, and he said, oh, Renshaw, Rabada, that's the next 10 years of test cricket right there. I may, well, I may very well be right. You, you may know. be right. I may but be right, you, you know. You may be right, but that doesn't mean that you're necessarily basing it on a sample. Of course not. Is. No, it was delirious. It, it was a conversation <laughs> I think we all wanted to have after Hobart. We, we, we we we're, were crying out for something like this. And I wasn't the only one. As I said, the back pages across the country um, really amped up that eight not out overnight, which, um, as we've often talked about on the final word, the, Quine, the Rob Quiney 9. Oh, the Quiney 9, the um, Renshaw 10. Well, it was the Renshaw 10, but it was Renshaw 8 when, the, when, the, when this all played out. And, you know, as I said, it was, it was, I think it was due to the fact that not so much how many runs he'd made, but the fact that he'd survived 12 uh, overs along with Usman Khawaja. Oh, some pretty searching part. bowling, let's, let's be fair. Outstanding bowling. I mean, this will be lost in the analysis to a certain extent through this test match. But Yeah, you win by seven wickets and people go, oh, yeah, it was a comfortable win. That doesn't convey the fact that the South African seamers were incredible. Again. Yeah, they, they, had, incredible. they had one poor session or one poor hour in, through the duration of the test match. They, they were, they were tip-top just as they were in Hobart. And we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll deal with that a bit later on as well. But um, coming through that first night, you know, the man on debut had a lot going on. You know, he, he sort of left his little heart out on night one he let so many balls go but he couldn't replicate that on morning two he was fending at balls and was ultimately caught in the cordon um, somewhat controversially in as far as we went to the third umpire to, to check whether it hit the grass they assessed that it hadn't hit the grass and he was on his way and shortly thereafter so was David Warner so I guess two for 37 uh, with Australia's recent history of collapses that could mm-hmm. have gone either way but mm-hmm. that brought Steve Smith to the crease with Us- Usman Khawaja for I guess the defining stand of this test match yeah and Khawaja's really bunkered down you know that uh, that second day I think he made something like 15 runs from the first 15 overs um, just the odd single here and there you know wasn't going after anything and and then after that point I think he leg glanced one boundary maybe in, in that patch of play once Steve Smith had settled in he played a big shot big pull shot for six and that seemed to 
get Kawaja going a bit and, and he picked up the tempo a bit after that, sort of got to 50, 58 by the first break, I think, and then added another 50 in the next session where only that one wicket fell, which was Steve Smith run out. Yeah, so they added, they added 137 and they both passed their half centuries when Steve Smith, for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me, tried to call Kawaja through for a single when he clobbered it straight to point. It's one of those run outs where they're kind of both at fault because Kawaja should have sent, should have sent him straight back. He, yeah. but he took three he took yards down steps. the pitch. Yeah, and that, and that complicates matters as far as who's formally at fault. But one I think thing, the but issue he was, but he was well me. out. He was out by three meters by the time that the bales were whipped off. Yeah, I, I think the the thing was that Smith hit it just behind point, so it was probably Kawaja's call. Uh, but Smith was watching the ball and started running. Now I don't know if he called yes, but he still hadn't looked at his partner. He was still watching the fieldsman and had taken the first couple of steps out of his crease. At that point, Kawaja responded because Smith was starting to run. Smith looks up, sees Kawaja, he says no, and then by that point, Smith's too far down and can't get back. But the rub is South Africa at that point still would have, I fancy, they would have backed themselves. You know, they've got the captain out in rather chaotic circumstances. The next two batsmen in are also making their international debuts. Um, and that, that brought Peter Hanscom in, who was shaky early. For mine, uh, the most impressive part of his innings was the first 20 or so minutes or the first couple of overs at least when he was genuinely shaken. He was facing some sensational bowling, uh, as we talked about before, right mm-hmm. on the money. He was playing and missing their inside edges and... Yeah. I, I found first it quite ball, instructive. First ball ripped past the outside edge. Second ball, he nearly bumped it back to Philander. Yes. It just landed in front of the bowler's hands. So. And, and it could easily go the wrong way in that situation, overawed by the situation that, he, that he'd walked into with the, with the captain having been dismissed. A, a, still a noteworthy amount of runs to reach a first innings lead. But as he said in the press conference afterwards, and he ended up finishing with 52, he made in the end. 54, Low 50s he finished with. I should have that in front of me, really. 59. Smith was 59 and Hanscom 54, I think. Right. So, but, you know, there was was obviously a bit of focus on how he was dismissed clean bold in the end. But at the start, he he, he said uh, about that little phase, he invested in his routine. And I like that. This is what Mm. I'm... They talk a lot about hardness and toughness in Australian cricket, but... Now, isn't it tough to go, I have a process, I have a routine, I'm under pressure with, you know, probably the better part of a million people on television watching me play in my debut for Australia, and I'm going to invest in a very simple, basic process every single ball, irrespective of how ugly it looks, in yeah. order to get through the hard bit, and then ultimately to, 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 to prosper after that consolidation. That's exactly what he did. He looked fantastic after he came back with the long break at the, 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 the dinner interval. Yeah. After he came back from that and, and had a you know had a bite to eat and a, and a cup of tea, he came out and, and, and them. Yeah, I mean, I think we hear about this kind of hardness, toughness stuff, and you and I have discussed it mm. fairly often. It, it, it's For me, it's a nonsense. It, it's a kind of caricature of masculinity that you walk around going, oh, who's a hard man? Oh, you're a tough guy, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not real. You know, it, it's it's putting on a Halloween outfit, and it's something that, that Australian men are expected to do, and I think it's detrimental for Australian men and Australian women. You know, I don't think it works out well for anybody. We're all the losers because of it. Doing something like like Hanscom did being composed and calm under pressure you know he didn't go out and try to munt the bowling but he he managed to to keep his calm compose himself and then uh, respond to the bowling in that kind of style and you know that's what the team needs it doesn't need somebody out there giving the opposition a gob full because you're a tough guy yeah and, and there's been some writing on this so Sam Perry last week in the Guardian uh, went into a bit of depth about uh, Australian coaching and, and the philosophies that underpin it particularly with hardness and I'll give myself a plug here by all that cricket magazine in England this month and I've got a, a piece in there as well which which talks to this topic as well and Hanscom would embodied the idea of a thinking cricketer a considered player and he was so impressive after play the way he 
um, way he articulated that. But the innings went on and ultimately uh, put Australia into a position where they had a first innings lead. They put on 99, I think it was Kawaja and Hanscom before he lost his middle stump. That wasn't particularly nice, but uh, that'll happen. But then, uh, you know, we, we had to see, uh, we had to endure Nick Madison's innings, the other debutant, and that, that was scrappy as well for different reasons. Yeah, well, mostly because he missed a half volley and got clean bowl. But let's but... go through that, though. Let's unpack why that... That's significant. I mean, it's it's one thing to miss a ball. It was it was a moving delivery and getting bowled, but it was more that I feel like he didn't invest in his routine. Like I think that Nick Madison is known as a stroke player, and he and he tried to defend a, a half volley. I think that had he his time again, rather had he had that ball come to him a hundred times, ninety nine yeah. times out of a hundred, he's playing a cut. Yeah, had a, had a shield bowler sent that down, you know, at the SCG. They collected from the gutter. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, and it wouldn't have been an issue. So maybe he let the occasion get the better of him. But it's also. You know, it's difficult to come in as you've been picked as a six. You've had this talking up that you're a game changer. You, you Effectively, people are saying you're going to come in, play aggressively, score quickly and, and change the complexion of the match. Now, you're coming in after the dinner break, day-night test, pink ball, moving about a bit. It's a bit hard to pick up under lights. I think as a batsman, it's probably a lot easier to see in the sunlight um, and, and more difficult to time at night. So... To expect to come in and dominate in those conditions is really fanciful. And, I mean, Kawaja recognised that because he buckled the hell down. Now, three wickets fell at the other end quickly, Hanscom and Maddinson and Wade. Wade and yeah. at that point, I mean, through that session, that last long session, 32 overs, Kawaja made 27 runs. Yeah, let's go backwards before we go forward. So by this stage, let's talk about Usman Kawaja's innings, which I've written, I think you have as well. It's, it's his best innings for Australia. Well, t- I mean, just from a technical standpoint, he changed so much of what he did. Correct. Um, and what I was writing about on the ABC website today was that in, in Wellington only nine months ago, whatever it was, he made 100 140 there, he made 145 here. In that Wellington innings, 25 boundaries. In this innings, 12 boundaries. In that Wellington innings, he made by far the bulk of his runs between about cover and backward point. Everything was on the offside. Here, he made almost all of his runs from mid-wicket to fine leg because he just didn't play through cover because he deduced it was too dangerous. He was able to keep that discipline across 308 balls. He did not drive the seamers for one boundary on the offside. Yeah, Not one. well, and, and I think that's, I mean, we went through this last night, how that played out. What, what they were doing, well, what the seamers were doing from South Africa were, 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 were attacking him from around the wicket, knowing they could straighten down the line. And like, a little bit like Freddie Flintoff with uh, Adam Gilchrist in 2005, that, this is a, a skill these three seamers have, a weapon they've got that they can deploy at any time. And obviously very aware of what occurred in Hobart. Um, Kawaja was... Uh, adept, uh, you know, savvy enough to watch the ball under his eye all the way through to the keeper. You talk about playing the ball late. That's the epitome of that. Mm-hmm. Like he was making a late judgment on, after the ball pitched and letting it fly, you know, routinely over the off stump or just outside the fourth or fifth stump. Whereas, as, as you say, Jeff, in, in earlier iterations of Usman Kawaja, remembering that when we, when we go on about Usman Kawaja, typically it is his cover drive. It, it, you know, yeah, when he's at his that's best. That's his shot. Exactly. So when he played that innings at Wellington, I wrote at the time that he, you know, he he, he peppered that cover boundary, uh, the the sponsorship sign, so often they have to replace it. It, it yeah. was it was it was where he he was um, at his absolute most fluent. And yet, yeah, I think this for, is a different, I, it's a completely different sort of innings, and that's why I rate it so highly. He had to play an innings which wasn't necessarily um, in keeping with the way he's been brought up through the Australian system, and yet he still managed to prevail. Again, that's toughness. Yeah, I, th- I think in that New Zealand innings, he hit fourteen boundaries off the seamers through mm. the offside. In this innings, none. He he it's had, incredible, really. He had four so offside stark. boundaries, and they were all off the spinner, the uh, the left arm wrist spinner, Shamsi. So, what he was doing was was waiting for a ball to be short enough or to be straight enough that he could work it to 
the onside so that that movement away from him wouldn't do him in um, and just refused to play drives on the offside because he didn't want to nick off. And yeah. he won the match for Australia, undoubtedly. Yeah, little wonder uh, that he and uh, Renshaw both batted for a lot of balls. We'll talk about Matthew Renshaw later, but he in a similar stat that I picked out last night, he faced 183 balls during the Test match and scored on the offside three times, <laughs> which I thought, was, <laughs> I thought was a delight. He scored almost all his runs behind square legs. Uh, so. Yeah, put the posh side away. We don't yeah, we, we've got Alistair Cook, Mark, too, in, in, in M. Renshaw. We'll come to him later. So, uh, Isn't what, Stephen Cook Alistair Cook, Mark, too? Alistair Cook. Score has about three no. shots. One, one's there, one's yeah, there. Yeah, but I'm saying isn't, oh, sorry. isn't, isn't, yeah, no, yeah, isn't, yeah, isn't right. Cook, too? What was his, oh, his press conference later? I thought I'd get the runs by hook or by Cook. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, come on, when, when you're, like, punting yourself over your own name. And then he, and then he goes, there's a line for you. <laughs> uh, savvy media professional Stephen Cook as well. as uh, He did make a good hundred in the second dig. Uh, but before that came, uh, we had Matthew Wade nicking off, which... Uh, again, I guess Wade and Maddinson were meant to really augment that first innings mm-hmm. lead and come in and you know uh, really uh, uh, be able to play that role. They weren't able to. Who was left to do that was actually Mitchell Stark. So mm-hmm. Mitchell Stark hasn't made a half century Finally. for a couple of years yeah. and, and is a player with you know beautiful classic cover drives, but hasn't been able to stitch it together. Probably again more important than the fifty odd he made on yeah. the next day was the fifty balls he faced on night. Just to Two. make sure no more batsmen came in that night. Exactly, like he, he, he played. I mean, he did, he wasn't a night watchman per se, but in a way, he he played that role. He he soaked up a lot of balls. Where Kawaja, much like night one, Kawaja yeah. was not playing any strokes after the lights went on, mm. and Stark was able to soak up a lot of the um, attention from the South African bowlers, yeah, and he didn't and, give and it away. Stark was probably the only Australian batsman who was really troubled by Shamsi as well. Mm. So the, the wrist spinner was really bothering him. You know, turning it past the edge, the googlies into him. There was one that went just over the bales that sort of went between bat and pad and very nearly bowled him. Um, so, you know, and he looked all at sea, but he managed to just keep getting that the big front leg down and getting enough of a stride in and, and, and sort of managing to miss the edge. It definitely wasn't convincing, but he managed to, to battle it out. Yeah, and they put on 80, uh, Kawaja and, and Stark. So I think it's kind of an underrated element of this game, uh, the, the, the role that Stark played with the bat. By the time they were done, the lead was beyond 100. By the time the innings was over, the lead was 1-2-4. That's very healthy. A lead of 1-2-4 in oh, any on that pitch. Match. But I mean, on that pitch particularly, you know, where we saw Australia really struggle to chase 187 last year in the fourth innings against New Zealand. You know, to have that sort of lead on the first innings was crucial. And it turned out to be so. South Africa made 250. Duplessis couldn't reproduce what he did from the first innings. You know, Stephen Cook made a very slow grinding 100, very nearly carried his bat, was, was last man out. But his, his 104 wasn't uh, really enough without anybody else doing anything around him. Yeah, well, they had a good couple of hours. Uh, into the last session, they'd only lost the two wickets. And, uh, and admittedly, they were, they were two important early wickets and, and Stark with one and Hazelwood the other in keeping with the, the, you know, the form of these two. They're always breaking up the top order, um, no matter who they play and no matter what format they play, seemingly. But uh, they, they did have... Um, only they did have wickets in the shed when the when the lights were, were coming on, and we talk about the importance of that. And then it started falling apart. There was a a couple of really important moments that that broke it open. I think JP Dumini losing his off stump to Nathan Lyon had a broader cumulative effect for Lyon. It was the first wicket. Well, sorry, the first wicket of that innings, but the first yeah. really good wicket, I guess. He picked up one. He picked up one, one of the bowlers. One, yeah, one tail end. Picked up on. Abbott in, uh, yeah, in Abbott the first innings. An LBW. It was the first time he'd. Uh, he had Abbott stumped actually, but this was the. Oh, was oh yeah, on the sorry, first the, night. Uh, yeah, the Wade stumping, which yeah. was the redemption story in its own right. Indeed, you know, it was Wade, <laughs> Lion, Adelaide Oval, South Africa, and not four things that go into a happy story for Australia, <laughs> especially when you chuck a stumping in there as well for a few, if you like. <laughs> well, exactly, um, but, or, or the lack thereof. So the fact that Wade got the collect, got the bales off, and uh, and Lion got the wicket to end. 
in that drought was pretty massive. So, so Lyon picks up JP Dumini, so he's got a bit of a bit of a head of steam, if you like. Then Hanscom takes an outstanding catch in the gully, which removes Faf Duplessis. So the captain's gone, and they've taken two wickets in half an hour. Lyon starts ripping it with the confidence that we know he can have from time to time. He earns Bavuma's top edge. He picks up Abbott leg before wicket in the yeah, last that's the over. One that I was thinking of from the, the second yeah. innings replicated. And, and, and in Decock, who was who was uh, protected by um, Abbott going in as night watchman, had to come out and face a few balls in the last over. He spun two past the edge. I mean, it looks like Australia were right on top at this stage of the game. 70 ahead on, on the board were, were South Africa, but only four wickets in hand coming into the yeah. final day. But and, I and also know... worth noting at that point, with that third wicket, Nathan Lyon went past Clary Grimmett on the yes. all-time wicket-takers list, went to 217, which means the only spinners ahead of him, Richie Benno, 249, is it? And, yep. and Shane Warne, 708. Actually, let, let's, let's talk to that. So I think that Lyon's first spell before the dinner interval, there was a lot of chat down in the, in the dinner room that Lyon's stuffed here. Like, if he can't find a way to break through and they can bat through to stumps two down, or if they can't, uh, or if he can't play a serious role in the second innings, which has been, in fairness to Nathan, probably his biggest challenge as a test bowler, having a big influence in the second innings of test matches. He's, a, he's done it, but rarely, less than he should relative to other spinners. Yeah, and, his third innings record is pretty ordinary. So and his fourth innings record too. So And that's meant to be when spinners really come into their own. But the alternative was true here. You know, I think that by stumps, we were saying Nathan Lyon's got his you know, mojo back for one of a... Uh, better terms. So, so really, that that was so important getting that one to slip past Dumini, and then by the end of the night, like I said, giving it a huge rip with a lot of flight line at his best, rather than um, rather than sort of uh, being in a Just position poking where he's it down at the other end and, and hoping to get through his overs without he, damage. And he's such a confidence bowler. I mean, we've yeah. said this about Nathan Lyon for years now, but when he's got his tail up, he's a considerably more threatening force than when he's feeling like he's playing for his spot in the side. Even though that may not be literally true at the moment, or it may have been because Steve O'Keefe um, was certainly he was certainly for talked about. You know, and and, um, and I think it could well have happened, you know, yeah, had he been if he not fit. Been, did his calf in the second dig in that Shield game. So yeah. that had, I guess, a broader effect on what we'll see, hopefully, for, for his sake in the rest of the summer. But still, South Africa coming out yesterday, 70 ahead, Cook nearing 100, um, to Cock, who's been equally uh, the most yeah. important player in this series, making crucial runs uh, down at number seven. Yeah, pretty much every time he's been called upon. And, and you know, it was at five down in Hobart that de Kock and Papuma put yep. the big partnership on. It South was, Africa. It was at um, five sorry, down Perth, in Perth. Um, when, when those things happened. So, you know, effectively they were five down. Technically they were six down because the night watchman had gone. But, you know, it was the, the usual sixth wicket sort of partnership. Um, and they could easily have put on another 50 or 60 or 70 or whatever it was and really made that task difficult for Australia. Too right. Had Australia been chasing 200 with the bulk of those runs required after dark? Again, coming back to that, the way these... Yes. The, the way that the, the tempo of these day-night test matches, this could have been definitely a, a, a test where Australia had to grapple a lot harder. Instead, um, Bird was the word. Jackson Bird, who got brought back into this side um, after missing out in Hobart on his home ground, which, Jeff, you've obviously written about and were very angry about at the time, but he got his chance, took a wicket in I the first I wouldn't say game. angry. I just don't think it makes sense. Like, uh, you're angry. You're fired up. Uh, you... You're angry enough to write about it. So so he took, he took wickets in in the first innings, but more important was the, the cock dismissal, uh, straightening him up with a ball that really jagged back in his first over. Such and... a good ball as well. You know, really angled across the left hand there. Pitched uh, in line and then straightened right down the line, beat the shot across the line easily, and he was absolutely dead halfway up middle stump. Didn't take long after that to deal with the bowlers. They showed some resistance, but it wasn't for yeah. long. Yeah, yeah, I mean, not not long enough. And you could have expected a bit more digging in, but I just think it's really difficult on that pitch and in those conditions. So I think people can constantly underestimate how much of a struggle it is for runs, and that's why I've loved these 
day and night tests the last two years because they've been low scoring, genuinely gripping contests in which, you know, I mean, last year, Peter Neville making 60 was the crucial batting performance mm. in the match. I mean, for, for Usman to go 140, is there's no surprise that that was the dominant, the defining performance of the whole match. You know, Australia's only 100 this summer. Well, we did have 300s and, and an 80 odd in, in his test as well. So I think that like, if you're going to look at it yeah, with it, a broader brush, this was a much better test match than last year's in Adelaide. Cause it was easier was, for it, batting, yeah, but, but it the bat was, more was equal not to the at ball. all easy. You know? No, but the bat was... I mean, Steve Smith described the conditions as perfect for day-night cricket this time, um, whereas he was, you know, not that critical, but critical enough of it 12 months ago. So yeah. I think it was con, con, much more normalised. It felt like a normal test match with, you know, there, there was significant um, advantage to the bowlers early on with the new ball, and, 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 the, and the ball seemed to move for longer conventionally. Yeah. There's not as much, obviously, with the pink ball reverse swings, a bit of an I I think the quantity. thing is with a normal test match, the first hour of the day is generally a bit tricky for batsmen and then they have mm. five good hours after that because, you know, you can profit particularly through the last session. The sun's been out all day. The pitch yep. is flat. The bowlers are tired. Exhausted, it's hot. Yeah. Great. You play the day-night test, you get that first hour you've got to be careful and the last two hours. You've essentially got three hours you need to defend and three where you can try to profit. In, you know, and really that middle session is the one where you need to try to pile on your runs. By the end of the day, the sun's gone down. It wasn't even hot in Adelaide this week, but even had it been, much easier to be a bowler at night. You've got less time spent in the heat in the middle of the day. The ball stays in better condition because the, the square and the, the pitch have more grass on it. And so bowlers have a weapon at night. I mean, it, it's conducive to lower scoring matches in a way which is actually really interesting and makes it that kind of arm wrestle test cricket that people claim that they want. Yeah, I'll just add into that that that's partly why I'd like to see these day-night tests in Adelaide start an hour later. I think that the the dark session should be an entire session. In practice, uh, we were noticing that it's still basically a day match in the twilight and, yeah. until the last hour, and it's only really dark for 40 minutes. So what we'll get in Brisbane in a couple of weeks' time uh, is, is, a, is a better yeah. example of that. because The sun disappears, it'll be pitch black at 6 p.m. That's right, no daylight yeah. savings in, in Queensland. So <laughs> we'll actually get to see if that's any better. But I, I like exactly what you're saying, Jeff, that framework yeah. of the last two hours becomes like the uh, you know the first two hours with the dew um, having an effect with the grass and, and the interplay there and hopefully aiding seam bowlers late as well as early. Um, but what that does mean is the middle of the day is particularly good for batting and that's when David Warner and Matthew Renshaw walked out after Steve Cook was the last man out on 102 I think it was and they needed 127 but they knew that those 127 runs could all be knocked off uh, before the last session. That was the best time to bat and that was illustrated by the fact that Renshaw and Warner either side of that first break were able to put together a 50 run pass partnership and, and openers care a lot about that and it's the first time of asking uh, for those two batting together because obviously Warner wasn't able to open with Renshaw mm. in the first dig and being able to put together a half century stand um, really did make it that the it was game over like the, the, the runs required well, particularly after that Warner's, Warner's able to clobber 47 I think he made in, in very quick time you know usual sort of style went after the bowlers gets down on one knee puts them through cover and it is the kind of play that he's criticised for and you know we've you know, we criticised him in Hobart for playing that that shot early in the first innings, but I think it's that he he didn't move. You know, his feet didn't move. He wasn't in good position to play that shot. Whereas here, when he was going after wide balls with a diagonal bat, he was moving into the ball. He was getting his body weight down. He was prepared to play that ball at the right time. Um, and when you've got a player who can knock off forty or fifty of a small target, it really makes the rest of it a formality. Whereas maybe if you've got a player poking around and you know nicks off early and a couple of wickets go down and you're two for ten, that's when sides start to panic. Yeah, and I think this is partly uh, the, in the Renshaw story of the week for him, it's that he was able to provide Warner with that. It just looked like it was under control. It was a tough session before yeah. T. The bowling was, again, top-notch. Yes. Um, from, oh, especially from, Abbott's. Oh, Abbott, I mean, Abbott's had a wonderful two test yeah. matches. And, 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 and the fact that it was Renshaw up the other end, 
I did some crunching of numbers last night. Okay. Jay Burns is. Uh, Batted in the in the in the opening position for Australia nineteen times and faced more than forty six balls. So the amount that Renshaw faced in the first innings, seven out of nineteen times. So right. you can understand if you're if you're Warner up the other end, you're probably thinking that, you know, there's a there's a one in three chance that yeah. Burns is going pretty cheaply here, how or about, at least not absorbing sec- balls. Second innings he faced what, hundred and twenty seven balls. Right. So, you know, the, the point being is how that many times have Burns have done that? Probably not more than a couple. Four or five he's, times. He's made yeah. those he's yeah. made the two hundreds. He's made three hundreds and he had one other eighty odd in Brisbane yep. two years ago. So or last year rather. So the point being is that um, Warner at least must have thought, well, with this bloke up the other end, he's going to take a lot of balls and thus take some shine off the ball and, and do a role in, in, in ending the, yeah. the seam as spells earlier than otherwise would be the case if they were rampaging through the Australian top order as they did in Hobart and in Perth. So yeah, like and, I said, that, the, that, that the, was really important, I think, in terms of building a partnership with those two. Warner can play. David, David Warner can be David Warner. Yeah, and it was sort of funny that you know, we had a couple of weeks of people crying out saying, when are we going to get a, an old-fashioned test batsman who puts value on his wicket and doesn't go for the big shots and grinds it out? And then poor old Renshaw does it, and then the crowd starts getting on his back, heckling him because he's not scoring fast enough. Yeah, I mean, this this kind of was the last half an hour, wasn't it? So I mean, it was it was, it was in fun, but it was still well, yes, I mean, it, it was in fun. But it, for it a twenty year old, to... it would be enough to put pressure on him to play a stupid hoy can hole out. And he said as much in his press conference. He said, you know, the temptation is to do that, and I had to be really disciplined to resist doing that. Um, you know, to resist playing up to the crowd when you know the match is basically won, and keep putting the value on the wicket that I had. You know, keep doing the thing that got me into the team. Yeah, I was going to come to this at the end, but now we've, now we've touched on it. When it comes to that resilience that Renshaw showed, that's precisely what Steve Smith's been crying out for. After Hobart, he used resilient like over 10 times in his media conference. I mean, resilience is being able to block out the crowd. Renshaw said to the ABC after play that he was distracted by the crowd at that exact juncture and he had to find a way to, as he said, not play a stupid shot. Like, you know, the temptation would be to throw the bat at the ball. The temptation would be to get the crowd off your back, especially given his job was done. But instead of that, he's like, no, no, I'm going to complete doing what I've done I'm going to, you know, maintain the the principles that got me into the Australian side, i.e., batting time, and I'm going to block all that out. And at, at 20 years old, that that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, to to have that level of stability in his play, it was great. And there was a lovely moment where he cover drove a boundary towards the end, and they went absolutely nuts. The loudest cheer I've heard, you know, the entire probably louder than Kawaja's 100 was that one that one boundary from Renshaw at the end when the crowd was getting a bit lickered and loose. Yeah, there was a bit of booing going around. Oh, it was more Bronx cheering than booing, wasn't it? When, when Smith took a single on the first yeah. ball of the over a couple of times. I mean, yep. Steve Smith was out there after David Warner got himself run out. It was when Kawaja leaked before on 64. I mean, again, we talk about had they been chasing 200, not 127, and those two quick wickets might have changed the state of the game, but the hard work had been done. So when Renshaw was playing and missing routinely, I think uh, they worked out on, on Crick Viz that it was 15 times he played and missed outside the off stump. Not flattering, but uh, by that stage of the game, it, it didn't matter an awful lot. So the TV commentators, evidently, I didn't hear this, but got stuck into him. And I think a lot of people were willing to unpick his technique. And, and, and I think we might actually save that bit for the next segment. But I, I guess the, 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 the reality was that the work was done uh, and Peter Hanscom came out to finish the job with Renshaw when Smith was run out. Sorry, That's Smith sicked off sorry, behind, the yeah. second time around to a lovely Kyle Abbott delivery with, in uh, keeping two, with the theme. Two runs required to so, win. So it was this lovely bit where they, you know, the two debutants are out there. The lights have just came on. They've extended the tea break. I think it was a nice touch being out there for the, the final run and embracing it. And it wasn't hugs. It was shaking of the hand. It was, uh, you know, it was all very considered and, and, and keeping in stride. They weren't, they weren't carrying on at all. And, I, you know, it just felt, again, like a couple of guys who, who, were, who were made for this arena. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. ABC Grandstand.
Final word, Adam Collinson, Jeff Lemon, here in Adelaide after Australia's comprehensive victory in the third test match against South Africa, where three debutants did appear, one of which we've talked about a bit then, but Matthew Renshaw, what a cricketer that he looks like and all the rest of it. But ultimately, it wasn't just that. It was He took a wonderful catch at first slip to remove Hashim Amla on, on morning one. Like I, I kind of reflected on this um, or afternoon one, I should say. Um, it's it's not often that you debut at first slip, especially when you're 20. Normally, that's the the, the preserve of the of, of the most experienced catcher in the side. Often, the captain will field there. Yet this bloke's um, gone in and standing next to Matthew Wade at first slip. It just you know, again, it illustrated that they've got a bit of faith in this guy. Well, it also showed how comprehensive the cleanout was. You know, if you change five players out of an eleven. <laughs> there are a lot of gaps. Yeah. So, you know, there, are, there are a lot of jobs left to be taken up. They needed a short leg. I think Renshaw was in at short leg at one point for a little while. He's way too tall to be there, but there seemed to be an enormous uh, gentleman standing there at one stage. And Especially Hanscom when he was in there the a bit. Maddinson was in there a bit. Well, it's a fair point about Renshaw being at short leg. I mean, he got whacked in the head three weeks ago at training. Um, he nearly missed the shield round where he made the 170-odds. So that's not for nothing either. So obviously mm. got a, you know, a fair bit of uh, you know, more the old-fashioned courage to get in there and do that because that must be very hard to back up at short leg. Certainly Chris Rogers has spoke extensively about this in the past. Yeah, we're not definitely not a fan of it, but I think it's a bit different going in there at 35 versus going in there at 20. True. I mean, when, when you're 20 years old, you're invincible. You know, I mean, that's that's your your own attitude. You've you've heard about peril and you've heard about death, but they're not things that are supposed to happen to people like you. And you know, that's why it's always so so tragic and heartrending when it does. But uh, but I mean, you remember being that age, you just feel like nothing can touch you. Um, what didn't touch, sorry, it's an awful segue, what didn't touch was the ball and the bat. <laughs> Chris Rogers <laughs> did a fair bit of detailing of why Matt Renshaw kept playing and missing. So he talked okay. about the volume of times it happened. Now, we'll try and do this, um, we'll, try and, <laughs> we'll try and unpick this with, um, with, with, with a visual, but it's kind of hard to do through the radio. Chris did a good job of it, though. So Renshaw's front foot, as the ball's being bowled, steps in front of his back foot in the line of off stump. What that means is that trigger movement... And he's a left-hander, if you're visualising And he's a left-hander. So what that means, according to Chris, is he's predicting where the ball will basically pitch before it lands. So when it does land in that shoebox, or that maybe that you know three feet by three feet um, uh, area, it, it enables him to have his head over the line of off stump and easily able to identify which balls to leave, which is good. The problem is when it's a bit straighter, and, and towards middle stump, and especially when it's moving away after pitching on middle stump, and we talked about how the South African seamers are quite nifty at this particular delivery, off-cutters from around the wicket, Rabada and Abbott are just phenomenal at it. Um, he gets into a situation where he needs to move his foot from outside off stump back towards middle stump, and that squares up his shoulders at the last minute at the point of contact, leaving his bat rather than, which means that often it looks like he's been beaten and squared up um, right. with, with his bat facing even square though, onto the bowler rather even than being side on. Even kind of come inside the line of the ball. Yeah, so he is still inside the line of the ball and Steve Smith spoke glowingly of the fact that he plays through the line, but um, the downside is that uh, he, he does get squared up quite easily. So that's something that Roger said is a technical flaw that um, comes from the fact that he probably just wanted to get um, into the right space early with the first movement and, 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 the, and the rest, but something he reckons he can get through in time and, and, and learn to play the ball a fraction yeah, later. I, I always get very confused when people start talking about these deep kind of bat- Analysis, it's good though, know, it's, because but, Chris Rogers was a left-handed opening batsman for Australia. Yeah. I mean, I find that fascinating because oh, he may well be right. Um, it's because just not it's really like, something I can assess. I mean, I get yeah. confused by a lot of things. I got confused <laughs> every time Steve Smith this last week or so said Brazilians. I thought he was saying Brazilians. We need to get some Brazilians <laughs> into the team, and I was like, Wait, you need Brazilians in there, do we? Like, we need a bit of flair, you know? We need we need Fred, center, like some center forward to come and tap it in. Or are you talking about beach volleyball style? Like, what are we get? What are we getting involved here? 
Um, it, it took me a little while to figure it out, but there, there are no Brazilian salads. I think it would spice things up, you know. It would be, be fun. A Brazilian barbecue, all-you-can-eat style before the game on yeah, a Friday night. Yeah, the churrasco. Get, a, get involved in that stuff. Bring around the skewers and lob off the chicken. I hope Jason Gillespie's not listening. <laughs> I won't be a fan of that. But, I mean, we've, you know, we share a love of the canary yellow shirt. Australia and Brazil, we're all about it. We're all about I think you're onto something here, getting out there in the lurid. You know, and I also like the fact that the Brazilian football shirt uh, has the, the coat of arms of the federation, but the, uh, the acronym is CBF, which uh, yeah. listeners can translate for themselves. Like but, urban dictionary, that but, one. But it is kind of, you know, I, I think it, it's a salute to the casual style of, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the footballing reputation to say, eh, CBF, we're just going to go out there and have some fun. Nice little soliloquy there from Jeff Lemon. For more of that, read his poetry, his poetry Twitter account. It's normal Jeff Lemon rather than Jeff Lemon Sports. Hey, so Chris Rogers, to return to this final point, he's very happy with him, and I think a lot of people were um, for all that Renshaw uh, showed across the two innings. He also provoked a lot of criticism, and that'll yep. happen when you're not scoring quickly and, and when you're playing and missing. But I think they'll manage him. My sense is yep. with him that with India coming up, uh, with Sean Marsh in the wings, and they're already talking about the likelihood of him making his way back into the Australian eleven when he's fit. That they'll they'll find a way to um, accommodate both of them uh, when India comes up. It's a long way away now, but I know you're I'm gonna... sorry. But when you sorry, when you said that Sean Marsh in the wings, I just went back to the Brazilian barbecue. Imagine like a big bowl of chicken wings, and he's just got his face in them, just chewing away. He's just eating his feelings. You know, broken finger out of the side. You're going so well. He's just just munching those emotions away. Bit of uh, fried chicken skin. I'll just set them up. You knock them down, Jeff. This is working really well. Uh, Peter... I'm just going for stream of consciousness here right now. Uh, Peter Hanscom, uh, the other debutant we talked already about how ready he looks. Mm. I suppose after the 215 he made for Victoria against New South Wales in that thrashing in that, in that shield round, he was always going to look the part. He was the most obvious selection uh, and, and, and also the man that looks um, most ready to play test cricket beforehand. But five years older than Renshaw, um, he looks the sort of guy who they're going to try and build a middle order around, it, and, and rightly so. Nick Maddinson, as we said, didn't get a bowl, um, didn't make a run, didn't take a catch. Bowl. I don't know why people are talking about him as a bowler. He's like Maddinson. He's bowled a little bit. I, but mean, I think the fact that he has been more recently is why they were pointing towards that in, in the need for a yeah, second spinner. I, but, but even so, I mean, he didn't get a chance list. here. What are you, 177 professional games, he's got seven wickets. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I mean, I'm not denying that his numbers don't suggest that, but I think that at some point we'll see him bowl this summer. He gets his chance for redemption in two weeks, though, because you can be sure of one thing. These three debutantes will be retained for the Pakistan series starting in a couple of weeks. This is The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. All right, wrapping up, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, The Final Word. That's the end of the first test series of the summer. The probably, some would argue, the prestige test uh, series of the summer based on how, how good South Africa were in their 2-1 defeat of Australia. But... It's still spring. Summer doesn't start for three more days. I know. And I mean, well, the equinox is probably December 21st or something, isn't it? Well, I think. yeah, the, the longest day and all, and all the rest of it. But, the, but, the, but the, uh, the actual seasons as they are on the calendar means that we've, we've got all this cricket out of the way already. But that just means there is a lot more to come. New Zealand, one day. Three Chapel Hadley fixtures are on mm-hmm. next week. So we'll be back on the final word to have a chat with you about those. And then we're yep. off to Brisbane for another pink ball test match. So... We enjoy being up there for that as well, and we'll be bringing all that yeah, to you as really well. Yeah, really keen to see how that turns out. I mean, given that the only day-night test experience we've had so far has been in Adelaide, what's going to happen in Brisbane? Are we going to miss an hour for thunderstorms every evening? You know, um, how much effect will the earlier darkness have? Will it actually swing and move around up there? I mean, everybody talks about the Gabba being a juicy pitch, and I've been guilty of this a million times, but more often than not, it's basically a road with a bit of bounce. Yeah, it certainly wasn't a juicy pitch last year, so I, I agree it will be interesting, especially, as you say there, that, that after 
after dark tendency for it to pour down with rain. The amount of times we've seen the covers rushed on at the very end of a, a day at the Gabba um, mm. in, in a conventional test match hours. And they're pretty quick at recovering from it. But, uh, sure, great but drainage it, there, as they always it, say. But it may take a chunk out of sort of the middle of the game, um, you know, which help, might help push it to five days. Yeah, so we go from pink ball to white ball, back to pink ball, then to red ball. So it's, it's going to be an interesting little phase this, this early part of December. Uh, Mitchell Stark and Josh Hazelwood are playing in those one days, which is instructive. I think yeah. Darren Lehman um, made some comments uh, which were to the effect of uh, if, if they didn't play um, Stark and Hazelwood, they would be they would get in trouble. So like yeah, the commercial pointing, imperative is. Well, to I, play think was, I, think was, I don't think it's commercial. I think he was basically pointing the finger back at the press, saying that when they were arrested for the South African series, we, that was held up as had a to go with them. Yeah, yeah. So I, I found that quite an interesting comment from Lehman uh, in, in his post match analysis. Uh, but in any case, they'll. But both he's be absolutely there. right. If they, if if either of those guys breaks down in Brisbane in the Test match, everybody will say, "Oh, they shouldn't have played the one dayers. Why did they play them?" And if they don't play the one dayers, everyone will say, "Oh, it's a second string, crappy Australian side, and you know oh, they're not respecting the fans, and you know the TV value, you know sure. the, the TV networks." crack it if they don't get the the top line players and then they have to get stuck into George Bailey about flipping burgers and all the rest of that <laughs> stuff you know um, we, we've seen it all before in summers past so we he, he's right he actually can't win he basically sort of had to say well we just have to make the call that we think is the best call but we will cop stick for it no matter what. Yeah, and I, even in the lead up to Hobart when they said that the medical advice they receive about Mitchell Stark about his loads you know, can be ignored if they see fit, if they think he's fit enough and if they think he's bowling well enough and he's certainly doing the latter at the moment. Yeah. And then we go into the, those Pakistan tests, Brisbane to Melbourne to Sydney at Christmas and New Year as per usual. Then we're off to New Zealand for some one days. Then we have Sri Lanka here for some T20s. In and Geelong. Family. T20s in Geelong at last. How good. Oh. Canadian Park. Oh, I've been waiting for this my entire life. Get down there to Cardinia and Watch, uh, you know, <laughs> Capagetera, you know, tonk one over mid-wicket. Yeah, can, can we stand in his standing room at the at the uh, at the at the city end there at Geelong up on the half forward flank? I've had some rough days there watching Hawthorne play over the years. <laughs> tell you what, back when they used to play there, and then um, then Australia off to India after that. So really, it's a massive summer that's well, only that, really that just starting. Well, that last T Twenty overlaps with the first India Test, so we're going to have two Australian sure. teams running around on the park at the same time. For the first time, that's happened, I yeah. think, as well. It's never been quite as um, quite as uh, quite as bad an overlap as that. So yeah. they're going to play some younger blokes in that. Uh, in that Sri Lankan series. And of course we have... I think um, that's good. I think we will have had the Big Bash and they should just pick the best guys out of the Big Bash and let them play. I mean, that's I've been saying this for a long time. That's really how a T20 team should be picked instead of drafting Smith back in and Warner back in and so on. Yeah, they're great players, but they don't play the format. You know, they play test cricket and they play one-day cricket. If they're not playing 20-over cricket, they don't necessarily have the rhythm for it. You know, I'd quite like to see what could be done by a sort of best of the BBL team. Not a bad shout, Jeff Lemon. If you want to talk to Jeff between now and the next time we talk, he's on Jeff Lemon Sport on Twitter. I'm at Collins Adam. You can read our writing all over the place from those Twitter accounts. I think we should probably wrap it up there, Jeff, because for all the future that we're talking about yesterday, Australia won a test match and it is back to normal. Australia are winning at home, sort of, kind of, <laughs> weirdly. Yeah, last. let's not talk about the series. You know, let's not talk about the <laughs> series that was conceded or the incredible effort from South Africa in winning three consecutive tours to Australia. Let's talk about winning the dead rubber. But no, yeah. it was a dead rubber, but it was a fine win as well. Uh, it's been fun bringing this to you, as always. The final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon.